Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. Rob Fain for Mike Smith, 17 minutes after 9 o'clock. Good morning, Vancouver. Good morning, wherever you are across this province. You know, speaking of British Columbia, it is no doubt that right now there are some tensions that are, uh, as a result of a murder a couple of months ago within the Sikh community. And there was information that the government had, there was information that CSIS had that the premiers, well, in particular, David Eby here in this province, probably could have used. At least that is what he is telling uh, people publicly, the premier of this province. So to get more on CSIS, their role within this communication, and much more, I'm, I'm very fortunate to be joined by former CSIS director and deputy minister on national defense, Richard Fadden. Richard, good morning. Good morning. Well, let's get into this. First and foremost, what is CSIS's role when it comes to sharing information or intelligence that they got, even with the feds? Well, the, any information that they get uh, is owned by the government of Canada. So there's no, there's no rationale in law or anywhere else for CSIS not to share information with the government of Canada. There are some traditions about not sharing the details of sources and whatnot, and that's usually respected, but there is no requirement. CSIS's information is the government of Canada's information. So when you give the information to the government of Canada, it is then up to them how they want to disseminate that information. Would that be correct? That is correct, Also, although they could also have delegated that function to CSIS as well. So as we look to Ottawa saying that they're looking at changes coming to the espionage law, obviously in our province right now, we're dealing with the fact that, you know, there's potential that the Indian government had a hand in a murder here on, Can- mm-hmm. on Canadian soil and British Columbian soil, for that matter. Would it have benefited our province to have additional information instead of just getting the stuff that's already in the news service? I think so. Just on the face of the file, that's, that's true. Then, now, that doesn't mean that everybody in the cabinet, in the provincial cabinet, and everybody in the provincial uh, public service gets the information. But I can see very, very few reasons why the premier, maybe the attorney general, uh, and a few few officials couldn't have had that information. When I look at um, the information that's available, obviously when I see something like, quote, credible sources, can you walk me through what a credible source might be? Well, it's basically a human source. It's somebody that... uh, uh, either CSIS or, in some cases, the police force have cultivated over the time. They have the view that they, they have acquired information from that source that's proven to be true, thus the credibility. Um, also, sometimes somebody simply calls up and volunteers information. But the idea is that you have a little bit of history with the individual so that you can judge his information or her information to be credible. Richard Fadid is a former CSIS director and deputy minister of national defense. Richard, is it a case of maybe fewer hands allow the job to be done better in the fact that if you're, you know, giving out this information to too many people, maybe it, it, it bogs down the ability to properly do an investigation? I don't think so. I mean, um, just because you have information doesn't mean you have to, to use the vernacular, you have to muck around in the investigation. But, you know, the administration of justice is the responsibility of the provinces. And clearly, in the case that we're talking about, there are national security implications that involve the federal government. But I really don't understand why, even using the existing law, the government couldn't have said to the premier, and as I said, a limited number of other officials in the province, 
so that they have a better understanding of what we're talking about. Now, if you give this kind of information, just to be clear, there is an obligation on the recipient not to divulge that information publicly. So that, you know, that goes with the receipt of the information. But that shouldn't prevent anybody, in my mind. I mean, I think under the, the current CSIS Act, uh, you know, there are provisions for CSIS to do security assessments for the provinces and to cooperate with provinces in the discharge of their duties. So I don't think there's any legislative impediment uh, to providing the provinces with that kind of information as long as there's a security assessment and there's an undertaking not to, re- not to reveal the information publicly. You know, in the weeks that I've been here covering this story, one of the questions that I ask, and I know this might be a, a bit of a vague question to somebody with the information that you have or the, the experience that you have, how vulnerable is Canada? It's a question I keep coming back to. I mean, you've obviously seen it a lot closer than many of us Canadians have. We see this, you know, potential action from the Indian government, which is alleged at this point still. But the reality is, is we, we hear about China, we hear about Russia, we hear about a number of different countries that kind of look at Canada as relatively easy to penetrate. How vulnerable is this country? Well, let me start from the premise that I think most Western countries, you know, Canada, Australia, the UK, France, the US, are vulnerable. Partially, or at least almost entirely because Russia and China and India and others are much, much more assertive than they used to be. So we're all, assert- we're all at risk. So your question, though, is are we more at risk? I think we are slightly, because it has taken us a little while to realize how much at risk we are. I mean, the government of Canada now, I think, considers China to be a strategic adversary. It took us a long time to get to that point after our allies got there. I think most of us in Canada, uh, assuming the allegations against India are true, are quite shocked that a country that we've considered to be, you know, a fellow Commonwealth country and whatnot, would do such a thing. So is the disparity between, say, us and Australia immense? I'm not sure it is. I would say we're slightly more at risk than our closest allies. And just to follow up on that question, when we talk about the exposure, we also have to look at the laws between the countries. And I don't know how versed you are. I know I I would be an entry level, which is probably Mm. part of the reason I'm asking you. Are the laws a part of the problem here in Canada? Uh, I think, you know, the laws could be clarified. There could be a few more powers. But I think there are two other issues that are equally important. One, I'm not sure that CSIS and CSE and potentially the RCMP have enough resources in the area of national security. Mm -hmm. I mean, this problem has been getting more serious year after year. And I also think that in this country, more than in our allied countries, there's there's a culture of relative restraint in terms of exercising the powers that are available. I mean, I don't want to overstate this, but, you know, um, we haven't considered ourselves to be at great risk over the decades, and I think it's generated a general sense that we need to be very cautious in exercising the powers that we do have. I think that's lessening, but I would argue the U.S., the U.K., and Australia are slightly more assertive in pushing back. That's a fair assessment. I appreciate your time, Richard. What on, Just fantastic information for us to chew on for the rest of the show. I thank you for your time today. My pleasure. Have a good day. You know, there is uh, no doubt that the fallout of the Ukrainian slash Nazi program or problem at the House of Commons is uh, it's not going away. For lack of a better phrase, you got Poland that's kicking tires on whether or not they're going to try to expedite the or extradite. Pardon me. The 98-year-olds, i got to talk slower here. Uh, or if they're going to, you know, work with Canada to see if they can get him 
back to Poland, despite his uh, his age, his fragile age. We'll, t- we'll take your calls on the other side at 604-280-9898. But let's push this story in a different direction and talk about how Russia is actually utilizing this incident here in Canada for propaganda purposes. To talk about this, senior fellow from McDonnell-Laurier Institute, Marcus Kolga, kind enough to join us this morning. Marcus, good morning. Good morning, Rob. Thanks for having me on. Well, thank you. And I'd love for you to kind of shine some light on this. Uh, I know a couple of days ago there were some diplomats over in Russia that were absolutely eyebrows raised, uh, just tongue-lashing Canada for their misstep. But can you break down how Russia's trying to make this a positive on their front? Yeah, well, this is, uh, in, in terms of disinformation, this is a real real goldmine uh, for, the, for the Russian government that's just really fallen into their laps. Um, they, there's, you know, this is more than they could ever imagine. And, uh, and their disinformation machine, their propaganda machine in Moscow has really gone into uh, overdrive to try and exploit this situation and extract every ounce of propagandistic value that they can out of it. And, uh, you know, this is because uh, that narrative uh, that they've been using to justify this barbaric and criminal war against uh, Ukraine for the past 18 months is it, it aligns directly with it. You'll, your uh, listeners will remember that back in February of 2022, uh, Vladimir Putin came out and justified this invasion, this unprovoked invasion, uh, as a uh, t- as a three-day operation to, quote-unquote, denazify Ukraine. And, um, you know, I don't think your uh, listeners need to be reminded that uh, Ukraine's president, uh, President Volodymyr Zelensky, is, of course, a uh, member of the Ukrainian Jewish community. Um, and, uh, in fact, uh, Ukraine, unlike most other European nations, France, Germany, Sweden, even Estonia, um, those countries have far-right elements sitting in their parliament. Ukraine doesn't have a single far-right party in its government. So this is a, a pure fabrication. It's Russian disinformation intended to erode Western trust uh, and support for Ukraine. And so what happened on Friday, like I said, it just it's, it fell into the laps of these propaganda, uh, propagandists. It aligns directly with that narrative. Uh, and unfortunately, uh, they're going to town, using it as much as possible and, and dumping fuel, even with more disinformation, to intensify its effects both inside of Russia and outside of Russia. You know, we got a text a couple of moments ago from Richard, and I'm not going to read it in its entirety because it's rather lengthy, but um, he brings up an interesting point. He says, am I the only one that thinks there's something more to this Rhoda Hunka story that we're all missing? We all know that this is a Canadian political disaster for many reasons, but the biggest is the fact that Russia, again, as you just mentioned seconds ago, is accusing the Ukraines of being Nazis and that Russia is fighting the good fight, but he's wondering if there isn't another layer to this entire story that we're that we're as average Canadians missing. Well, no, I mean Richard's right. I mean there could be more to this, uh, and we don't know the entire story. What I've heard, though, from uh, folks in in Ottawa, both sides of the house, is that um, it does appear that um, this uh, this person who was present on Friday, and I should mention that I was actually in the House of Commons when this happened. Hmm. Um, this person. Uh, was probably known to uh, the speaker. Uh, he was. They're both from North Bay. Um, the the selection of this uh, person was probably rather innocent, um, and uh, you know I think it's unlikely that that this was part of some you know bigger operation. But um, you know Russia is 
has in the past uh, engaged in these sorts of operations, so we can't completely rule it out. But I, but I do think that it's unlikely, and I think it's just a, you know, a freak coincidence um, that this this happened now. It's um, and it's largely due to, I think, unfortunately, um, some ignorance uh, about Central Eastern European history. Um, you know, anyone, uh, myself included, had we known uh, or heard that there was someone like this that was going to be uh, inside the house, who's going to be presented by the speaker. I mean, it's, there's a red flag immediately. Mm. Uh, and you'd want to vet this person uh, right off the bat. And I think a quick call, and I think that the, you know, the opposition, uh, you know, Pierre Polievre continually mentioned that the speaker's office should have just used Google. Well, you know, there is something to that. Um, but ultimately what we need is, is a, a more awareness of Central and Eastern European history to understand exactly what happened there because their understanding and their experience of, of uh, what happened during World War II is quite different from, uh, from our perspective here in, in Canada and I think in a lot of the, the Anglosphere world. Marcus Kolga, Senior Fellow with McDonald Laurier Institute, for a couple of more moments here on the Mike Smith Show. Marcus, with you in the chamber during that moment, did you see anybody that continued to sit down saying, well, wait a second, that doesn't add up? Or was it, uh, was it presented by Speaker Rhoda as, you know, just a, a Ukrainian hero in its simplest terms, and that's what everybody uh, rose to their feet for? Well, I think what everybody has to remember is that everyone in the House at that moment was feeling the elation of being in the room at this historic moment after, and what's been forgotten, unfortunately, in all this, was an incredibly powerful speech by President Zelensky. And so this happened just after that. So I think every, the room was buzzing with Zelensky's presence, his speech. This happened, and uh, quite frankly, I, when, this, when uh, it was announced that there was a, a Ukrainian who fought against the Russians, I turned to uh, my colleague who was, who was sitting beside me, and I said that, you know, I've, they better have vetted this person properly um, because we don't know who it is. It could be problematic. Uh, and sure enough, I mean, he was presented as, you know, a, a Ukrainian hero, a Canadian hero. So it's understandable that everyone would get up, mm-hmm. um, especially if you don't know much about this history. But, you know, as it turned out, it, you know, unfortunately, uh, that moment, unfortunately, again, uh, offended probably millions of Canadians. Marcus, and, not to, uh, not to cut of- you off, not to cut you off. I, I just have one more question I want to squeeze in here. Sure. Why would why would uh, the 98 year old, why would he accept the invitation? Um, you know, you'd you'd have to ask him. Uh, quite honestly, um, I, I I don't know. Um, and, and again, I, at ninety eight, I don't know if you have your wits about you, but I mean, you know, Yaroslav Hunka, you know, is going to be going to the House of Commons represented as a Ukrainian hero. If I'm him, knowing my history in the background, it's probably not a spotlight that I even want, Sean. I mean, I mean, if he doesn't make that decision, somebody in his family is probably helping him with that decision. I just find it almost surprising that he would be like, yeah, I'm in. Yeah, and that is a good point. It's quite shocking. And again, you mentioned the fact that he's 98 years old. You know, surely his family members would have realized that his background would come out with that sort of a a national and global spotlight. And yeah, I mean, it's a good question. Why did they accept the invitation at all? It's a good question. All right. Well, thank you for the time today. I didn't mean to talk over you. I just I was looking at the clock and I'm like, ah, he's so good at this. I just want to get that one question in. But Marcus, let's talk again. And uh, thank you for your insight today. Anytime. Thanks for having me all, Rob. 
right now, Canada has a big capital gains break. And frankly, if you're a you know, billionaire who owns lots and lots of property and assets and real estate and you're selling and buying all the time, you should get taxed fully for the gains that you make on that. That is Katrina Miller with uh, Canadians for Tax Fairness. I'm Rob Fay. Welcome back to the Mike Smith Show. Uh, in its simplest terms, the question is, is it time to further tax the rich? BC Director of Taxpayers Federation, Chris Sims, kind enough to join me. Chris, good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having us. Well, let's talk about this in its simplest terms. Is it time to tax the rich? It sounds like such a good thing, right? Just go find that man or that woman with a bag bursting full of money and take it. But the problem is, is it doesn't work. So this whole eat the rich mentality sounds cool. It sounds appealing to those of us who a wealth tax would not directly affect. Most of your listeners would not be directly affected by a mega wealth tax, but it doesn't work. And we've got a really good example with France. So France tried a wealth tax. They tried putting, I forget what the percentage was, it was a big mega tax on their wealthiest of people. Guess what? Super uber-duper rich people are very highly connected to accountants and lawyers, and they've got people. They just either move their assets somehow or they pick up and move completely, which is what happened in France. So much so that the president of France was quoted in translation of saying, this wealth tax has turned us into Cuba, but without the sunshine. So they reversed it because these rich people were leaving, taking their wealth and assets with them. And in in some cases, some of these rich people were also job creators. And so they were taking their businesses with them. So again, we understand the appeal. It sounds really cool. The problem is, is it just doesn't work. And if you take a look at the numbers, a couple of years ago, the Trudeau government was floating a wealth tax at the national level. Even at the national level, if you can imagine all, you know, how many billionaires we might have in, in Canada nationwide, they would have gone through the wealth tax proceeds in about a week worth of spending. So this is the problem. It's the spending and the waste that's the problem, not the fact that we don't have a mega wealth tax. You know, Chris, when I was in school, I remember, you know, having this conversation. I mean, it's been around for that long. And, and, and some of the, the pillars of this were, you know, you're promoting fairness, you're funding public services, you're, you know, guiding towards economic stability. But the reality here, and, and it's a great reference point to talk about France, the reality here is you've got to find a way uh, to, and not a lot of common average shows like myself are going to appreciate this comment, but you got to kind of find a way to keep business here, do you not? Yes, you do. And you nailed it right there. And it's funny, it's, it's often in university campuses and in trade school campuses. I remember when I was at BCIT back in the day, one of my friends literally had a t-shirt that said, eat the rich. And like, we get it. The thing is, is it just doesn't work functionally. And right now, the top income earners already pay pretty high income taxes. And those pretty high income taxes do pay for services. And like you said, It's always a balance to try to find that sweet spot. How much do you charge the rich and the wealthy for their income taxes without charging them so much that they leave? Because you got to keep them here because they do pay for a lot of our services. Would it be fair to say, Chris, and and this is a really blanket statement, but as a guy that's worked in public relations and image and branding and that sort, over the last couple of years, you know, you think of the Donald Trumps of the world. I mean, the rich are painted with such an interesting brush that right now you almost feel this hatred between the common class and the upper class when in actuality, the upper class is 
putting us to work and giving us opportunity. Yeah, and it's easy to target them, especially because, well, one, most of us can't conceive of that kind of wealth. I I know I can't. My family can't. Two, quite often uh, they'll have big personalities like Donald Trump, like Elon Musk, like those sorts of people. But to your point, if you just kind of rinse that imagery away and you look at the investment and the job creation in the industry created around some, not all, but some very mega wealthy people, it is a net benefit. And again, it's that tricky balance of how much do you tax them while still keeping them within your tax jurisdiction. Because if you tax them too much and they leave, it's gone. Like gone, gone. All of it is gone. All of the income taxes and the business taxes they were previously paying are now absent from your bottom line. So again, it is appealing. We understand why these studies come out, but they just don't work. And they've tried it in a Western democracy to whom we are directly related, in this case, France. Chris, I'm going to play a clip from Katrina Miller. She's uh, with Canadians for Tax Fairness. I want your thoughts on this at the end of the clip. Frankly, right now, the wealthy aren't generating a lot of benefit to the rest of us in our economies because they're holding the wealth. They're not sharing it at all. What a tax system does when it operates properly is it helps redistribute some of that wealth so that we can all benefit and ultimately make it a better society for everyone to live in. What do you make of that, Chris? I would just say show us the data. Like, I know there's going to be some people who manage to be like a cartoon character and ferret out their wealth and not pay income taxes or not pay business taxes. But this idea that somehow they're paying no taxes, that the wealthy and the rich people are paying no taxes, isn't true. And I'm concerned also with the the clip that I heard earlier and some of the, the studies that I've heard earlier where they're going after people's property. So if you own more than one house in Canada and you sell that second house, you pay a capital gains tax. You already pay a capital gains tax. Somebody who owns multiple properties in Canada, you pay a capital gains tax on the sale of that property. The risk here is that the Trudeau government, with help from research coming out of UBC, by the way, is sniffing around a tax on your home, your primary residence, the only home that you own and live in, which has been income tax-free since the 1970s. Okay, people have not had to pay an income tax on the sale of their own home since the 1970s, which is why a lot of people use that as their nest egg for their retirement. But they're really sniffing hard on something like a home equity tax Hmm. or a tax on your primary residence. And so this is why we're a little bit concerned when we hear language like go after people who own property. It's an interesting conversation. I'm going to open up the phones on the other side and we'll keep this discussion going. Chris, thanks for your insight today and for your time. Hey, thanks for covering this. Hang in there, everyone. Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.